Apostle Paul was in a Roman prison, and from that prison cell, he wrote letters to the churches with a deep concern for their eternal salvation. He wrote the congregation at Ephesus to remind them of the church as it relates to Christ. When he came to the Colossians, he wrote to them a letter that emphasizes Christ as he relates to his church. Paul, in the first two chapters of the book of Colossians, addressed a very doctrinal portion, emphasizing that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as he said in chapter 2 and verse 9, for him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But as he did when he addressed the Ephesians, he also had a very practical part of that letter. It addressed the way that you and I conduct ourselves as Christians, our everyday living. For instance, when I studied this portion of Scripture that we will study this morning, I thought back to my childhood attending the Bethel Church of Christ. I would say approximately at least a third, maybe a half of the time, the closing song would be number 611, Take the Name of Jesus With You. I don't think I can ever forget that song. I know the reason why the song leader selected it is because he wanted to emphasize, now we've been here, we've worshipped God, we have been enthused about what God has done for us. Now, take the name of Jesus with you. As you leave this place, take it wherever you go. In preparation for our lesson this morning, I'd like to begin with a question. How much should our faith impact who we are in private and in public? I was working on this lesson several weeks ago and did not realize that this next point would have such practical application this very week. Society is saying if you are a pervert, celebrate it. If you're religious, hide it. This past week, Mr. Jason Collins, who is a professional basketball player, came out and said that he was a homosexual. Everyone from our president all the way down through the various news media have celebrated the fact that he had enough courage to come out and tell everybody he was a homosexual. And they have praised him, patted him on the back and saying how great of a job that is. At the same time, in Texas, a young man was running a four-man relay race and when he got to the finish line and he won, he did this. Not to say I'm number one, but because the young man is very religious, he was wanting to point up to God and thank God for his ability to be able to run. Afterwards, they found out that they had disqualified that team who won, who would have gone to state. They disqualified them because of that religious activity. Also, in the Pentagon, it was announced this last week 
that those who would promote their Christian faith could be subject to court-martial. Now, they have since tried to backpedal on that, but uh, that was a statement earlier this past week. What we have to realize is society is telling us if you want to be sinful, if you want to be perverse, advertise it. Tell everybody how much you enjoy your sin. On the other hand, if you hold to traditional Christian values, you must hide that. Now let's go back to the Bible. The verse prior to our section this morning is found in chapter 3 and verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in His name. I know people may say, I'm confused. Am I supposed to follow society and am I to keep my faith to myself? Or am I supposed to take the name of Jesus with me? Clearly, we should be more concerned with pleasing God than pleasing society. Society is so fickle, it can't make up its mind as what it wants to believe. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I do know that Solomon in his wisdom said in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Folks, you always do what God wants you to do. You always follow God's will. And I can assure you that in the end, it will be right. As we proceed to our lesson this morning, we want to look at two things. Beginning with verse 18, going through verse 21, will be Christ in our home place. And then chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1, will be Christ in the workplace. Now, there's a lot to be covered, so let's begin our lesson this morning. Let's look at verses 18 through 21 again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Jesus can be a stranger, a visitor, or live in our homes. To many people, Jesus is a complete stranger. He's never been in their home. His word has never had any guidance or direction about the way those people live. For them, Jesus, they would not recognize him if they met him in Scripture. These people make all their decisions on the basis of what pleases me and how I feel. If I enjoy it, I'll do it. If I don't enjoy it, I won't do it. Other people, Jesus is a visitor in their home. You know, there are people who visit our homes. They have been there occasionally. They perhaps know where the uh, restroom is located in our home. They may know where our kitchens are located. But they're not there enough to have any impact on it. 
A lot of people, when problems arise in their home, like, well, let's call the elders. Let's see if they can help us. Let's call the preacher. Let's see if we can talk to him and find a solution to our problem. Okay, the problem's over. Now what are we going to do? We're going to go back to the way we used to do things. For those people, Jesus is only a visitor in their home. And then there's other people. Their life revolves around the Lord. Everything in their home is about pleasing God. Whatever they do in word or in deed. Let's look at the roles and the responsibilities in the home place as Paul presents them. First thing he says, wives be in subjection or submissive submission to your own husbands. Now, we could explore that a lot. Let me just give you some parallel passages which I believe address the subject very well. When Paul wrote the Ephesians, he said in chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. What if the Lord were here this morning? When the Lord came up to the pulpit, this is actually his church, it belongs to him, and he says, okay, church, here's what I want you to do. Would we do it? Absolutely. He's the Lord. It's His church. It belongs to Him. He says, Wives, be in subjection and submission to your husbands as to the Lord. I know that's pretty strong language in a society that says, But we're all equal. And we all make the decisions. And our friends and our neighbors and our society is telling us, That's not right. When you go to Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he's talking about what he wants the older women to teach the younger women. And here's what he says, that they admonish their young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be homemaker, chaste homemakers, good, and notice this next one, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. If someone were to come and say, Tony, we want you to perform our wedding ceremony for us. But when you get to that part of the ceremony that says, will you promise to love, to honor, and obey, we want you to drop that part out. You know what my response would be? Go find you a justice of the peace or a judge or someone else to perform your ceremony. I'm serious. Because that's a part of Scripture. If you're going to say, I'm not going to do that, then don't ask me to be a part of it. Folks, it's time we quit letting society dictate what we do in our homes. In 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Peter writes, Wives likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Women, you have a tremendous amount of power and influence. But you can be the greatest in your power and the greatest in your influence by being a submissive, subjective wife. What does that really mean? It's a voluntary placing of oneself under the authority of another. And someone says, well, that may, does that really mean that you think that I am inferior? No, that doesn't mean that at all. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. 
If you go with me to the book of Luke, to chapter 2, verse 51. It says, Then he, that's Jesus, went down with them, that's Joseph and Mary, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, who existing in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. He went to Nazareth and was subject to Joseph and Mary. Same word, folks. A voluntary submission. In Titus 3, verse 1, he says, Remind them, that is Christians, those who are saints, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. What this means is wives must be obedient, submissive. Now, as we go a little bit further, though, husbands have their own roles and responsibilities. In fact, in this passage, Paul gives a dual responsibility. The first one being that they love them. You say, what do you mean? Two passages of Scripture will explain what this means. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does, the Lord does the church. In other words, it is such a deep and abiding love that it is sacrificial. That it says, your needs come ahead of my needs. If a wife is willing to be submissive to her husband and a husband loves his wife, there will be no conflict in that. But then he says also, In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. What an amount of time you could spend with those Verses, Brother Gary did a tremendous job preaching on that during the Bible class hour two weeks ago today. But the second part of the responsibility of husbands is not to be bitter toward them. You might wonder, what does he really mean when he says, don't be bitter toward them? One of the books that I use frequently has got a long title. It's called The New Linguistic exegetical key to the Greek New Testament, a mouthful. Uh, We simply abbreviated GNT. But uh, when you look at that, that dictionary says it is a synonym of harshness, meaning a perpetual irritation and fault finding. You want me to tell you what that really means? That means, husbands, don't constantly nitpick your wife. 
Don't constantly find fault with her. Don't constantly try to irritate her. You know, we all tend to laugh about those passages found in the book of Proverbs when it talks about a contentious woman is like a dripping on a very rainy day or it's better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than in the house with a contentious woman. Why do you think she become contentious? Is it possible that we're so bitter toward them, that we're so irritating and fault-finding that we are pushing them to that position? Let me tell you the origin of that. James chapter 3 and verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Bitter envy and self-seeking go together, and what it is is what a person is selfish I want what I want. You don't cooperate and I'm going to be bitter toward you. Third part of this role and responsibility is with regards to children. He says, children, obey your parents in all things. The word obey here is a little different than some of the other words. It literally means to hear under. To listen under. Why should you listen? Young people in the audience, I'm fixing to give you a real eye-opener. Your parents know more than you do. I know that's hard to believe right now. You think they don't know and they don't understand. But guess what? Once a long time ago, they were your age. And they went through some of the same things that you're going through. And guess what? Some of them made some of the same mistakes that you're making. And they're trying to get you not to make the mistakes they made. They love you. They want you to turn out right. They have the education. They have the experience of time. And you need to listen to them. You need to listen under. You need to obey your parents in all things. It's easy to obey in areas where you agree. You may be a neat freak. You may be the one mama says, go make up your bed. And you say, I'll do that because I, I like a neat room. But he didn't say obey in some things. He said obey in all things. Your parents. You've got a responsibility. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. What a responsibility. Next, parents, more specifically fathers. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers must not provoke their children by being unnecessarily harsh and unnecessarily severe. You know, in this regard, sometimes it would be best that we as parents look to our parents or our grandparents. You remember, just like I mentioned earlier, that children obey your parents, Lord. They've already been there, they've already done that, they've already made the mistakes. Sometimes it's hard as a parent to know how to balance between 
being strong and certain in your punishment and in your guidance and being overbearing. And Solomon, or not Solomon, Paul here through writing of the Holy Spirit recognizes that it is a potential possibility. He says the result is discouragement. The Greek-English lexicon that I use most often defines this means to become disheartened to the extent of losing motivation, to be discouraged, to lose heart, to become dispirited. Have you ever seen a child who got to the point where he felt like he could do nothing to please his mama and daddy? They're so hard on him, they say, I give up, I quit, I can't do anything to make them happy. Some parents can never see any good in their children whatsoever. They can't find anything with which to praise them for. And so the child gets to the point of discouragement. Loses motivation. I don't know. I I can't do anything to make them happy. So why try? I quit. Listen to Ephesians 6 and verse 4. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Look to God and look to His Word for your parenting skills. Well, I know the world is going to tell you, oh, I do this. You can watch Dr. Phil or you can read Dr. Spock. But there's no better teaching than is found in God and in His Word. Now, let me move from the home place to the workplace. You know, most of us would say, okay, now, you, let, you can let your faith and your religion and your uh, love for the Lord take place in your home, but what about if you go to work? Let's pick up now with verse 22, go through chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey your, in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Everyone should want to have Christian owners, bosses, masters, and everyone should want to have Christian servants, employees. You ought to want to work for a man who is a faithful Christian. You ought to want to have employees who are faithful Christians. Someone says, well, I know a guy who's a Christian, and he's a mean old tyrant. No, you know an unfaithful Christian who's a mean old tyrant. Well, I hired a member of the church and they stole from me. You hired an unfaithful member of the church and they stole from you. A faithful Christian will be the very best owner, boss, employee that you could ever find. He first addresses the bond servants. We don't have bond servants in our country today. A bond servant was a piece of property. They were owned. Someone bought them, paid for them, or they were born in their house as a child of a slave. 
In the first century, this was a common occurrence. In many cities, the number of slaves outnumbered the number of people who were free and able to go about and do their own thing. As a bondservant here, he tells them that some of the people you serve will be good and some will be harsh. Listen to 1 Peter 2 and verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. I'm not going to ask you to do this, but how many of you would raise your hand if I said you work for a very kind, good, and gentle person? Some of you would raise your hands. On the other hand, if I were to ask you, how many of you work for a person who is a tyrant? They're mean, they're harsh, they're unkind. Some of you would raise your hands with that as well. And if you listen to Peter, Peter says, really it doesn't matter which one you serve under. You obey both of them. That's your role. The word obey here is exactly the same word for children obey earlier. To listen under. You respect their authority. What they tell you to do, you do that. And he explains how. Not with eye services, men pleasers. Do you know what that means? There are some people when the boss, the owner is there, will make sure they do everything just right. The best way I can compare this is to what many of us remember as a child. You remember you were in a classroom and the teacher was in the classroom and everybody was as quiet as a mouse? And then the voice would come over the PA system and says, Miss Jones, we need you to come to the office. And the teacher says, all right, students, y'all be good while I'm gone. The teacher gets about ten steps from the door. You know what happened? Kids started laughing, jumping out of their seats, throwing paper wads, and some kid ran to the door to watch for the teacher. Helter-skelter. Do you know what happens in some businesses when there is a boss, when there's a foreman, when there's somebody there? Everybody's just doing their job. They're working long. The boss leaves. You know what happens? Everybody just does what they want to. They start goofing off. No, they don't all do that. Some do, though. And he says, you don't do it with eye service as men pleasers. But you do it as unto the Lord. As if you're not serving a master who's just in and out. You do it like you understand you're serving the Lord. And he says, do it heartily. Put your effort into it. Listen to what he goes on to say. One who does wrong will be repaid. There's no partiality. God says... You may think because you're in the subservient position that somehow God's just going to let that slide. No, He's not. Without partiality, God is going to judge each and every one of us. And very quickly, masters. He says, give your bondservants what is just and fair. Let me point out to you, God has always been concerned with fair and just treatment. When a person deserves something, give it to them. 
Just because you're in a position of power over them doesn't mean that you can or should mistreat them. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 24, 15. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and he has his heart set on it. Lest they cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. God says, if you owe a man money, pay him. You might say, well, I don't have to. I can hold it. He says, no, you pay him. He said, if he cries out to me, it's going to be a sin to you. Or consider 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Paul's writing the church about supporting the preaching of the gospel. And he says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, or whoever plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, Jumping down to verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Is it God, oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it for all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That he whose plow should plow in hope, and he who threshes should be a partaker of that hope. I found it very interesting when studying this. When he asked the question here in verse 9, is it the oxen that God is concerned about? One commentator says it can't be the oxen because they don't read. can't be the oxen because they don't read. Folks, God intended masters give what is just and fair to the person who serves him. And he uses, you don't muzzle the ox while he treads out the corn. Let me give one more, James 5, verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cry of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. God is concerned with fairness, justness. And here's the reason why he says this to these masters. They have in their minds, I have the power. I have the control. I'm the one in charge. And he says, you need to know that you've got a master in heaven. You've got someone who stands over you as well. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 34, the Lord gives a parable. And for the sake of time, let me just very quickly summarize the thoughts in it. Here's a man who owes a tremendous amount of money to his Lord, to his master. And he calls him in and he says, you pay me what you owe. And he said, I can't. Such a large amount of money, I can't do that. He says, okay, I'm, I'm going to forgive it. You're freely forgiven of that debt. He goes out and finds a man who owes him just a little small amount, maybe like $20. And he says, you pay me what you owe. And he says, I can't. Be patient with me. And he throwed him in jail. You see, the problem is sometimes we tend to think if, if we're in the position of power over somebody, we can treat them any way we want to. What that man did was call back in by his master and said, I freely forgave you. We need to understand, regardless of who we are, we each and every one have a master in heaven to which we must answer. And I want you to listen to Ephesians 6 and verse 9. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, 
knowing that you also have a master in, in heaven, there is no partiality with him. Two things to draw out of this. Number one, give up threatening. You can talk better to your employees than you do. Number two, he says there's no partiality with God. You may think earlier, as we talked about the one who was a bondservant, he says if you do wrong, God's going to repay you for that. There's no partiality. Here in Ephesians, he said, you masters, you think you may want to get away. There's no partiality with God. God judges each and every man on the basis of what he does, right or wrong. Summarizing it all together again, we ought to take Jesus with us everywhere. When you leave here this morning, Jesus needs to go with you to go home. When you go to your work tomorrow or tonight or whenever you must go to work, you need to take Jesus with you. He doesn't need to be with us just here at church. I don't care what society is telling you. Jesus needs to go with us everywhere. Sadly, and I say this very sadly, some of us are ashamed to let other people know we're Christians. And what Jesus said in Luke 9 and verse 26 is very appropriate. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of his holy angels. Folks, I better not be ashamed of my Lord, whether at home or at work or anywhere else. Why not own the Lord in everything you do? One of the greatest things you could do this morning is to be a faithful Christian. Some of you have not yet obeyed the gospel. There is prepared for you a baptistry and garments. The reason why it remains prepared is because the Lord's invitation remains prepared. That if any will believe that Jesus is the Christ, repent of their sins confess their faith, and then be baptized. The Lord will add them to his church. We could have a new brother, a new sister in Christ this morning. If you are a Christian and you look at your life and you see sin in it, folks, it's time now to correct the problem. No need to carry that burden any further. You let the Lord be the guide of your life, and I can assure you one thing, it will end correctly. You let the world guide you, and it will end bad. If you need to respond, would you come as we stand and sing?